Brick Moon Fiction presents With Lovers to Extinction by Eric Del Carlo Narrated by Nicholas Thurkettle The microburst interrupted the deputizations, but only for a few seconds. Then tired old plump hopeless Rusty Horvitz, looking like a bus driver in his khakis, resumed reading from a dog-eared book, and not George's, not anybody else with palm opened and raised, heard a further word inside the drum-beaten room. The hail was murderous, but you couldn't incarcerate the weather, and anyway, it stopped on its own. By then, Georges had said, I do swear, and was a deputy. His fellows, sixteen including him, made the slovenly police office eager and cluttered as they milled in self-congratulatory circles. Georges waited until the way was clear, then went to collect his armband. Rusty Horvitz dangled it, the last one, from the end of his index finger. He wheezed with a coffee and whiskey smell, and his fat sunk eyes stared up out of the pit of sorrow where he'd buried his wife. I want to be wrong about you, Georges Radich. Rusty's other hand pressed the leather-bound manual against his heart. Georges worked the armband up his left sleeve, making sure the insignia was the right way up. Too young, too quick through training, too stupid, said Sheriff Rusty. Maybe not you. Maybe. Georges looked for hope in those eyes and saw a jigsaw of red squiggles. Outside the station, the hail was a marbly slush. Georges's four-by-four paladin had probably picked up still a few more cratery dings, but there was no way to tell. The lot was crowded. Rusty's cruiser sat fully beneath the building's overhang, looking like it would never go out on official business again. The sun was out hard after the microburst, and Georges lowered his truck's windows. An algae-burning whine pulled up to his left elbow. Deacon Breast's motorcycle helmet was stuck with retro-metal band stickers. Weren't you hoping for a badge, too? Georges glanced down. Because he had never played on a team in high school, Deacon had regularly called Georges the F-word. Georges actually liked physical activities, but the solo kind. Batting cage, swimming, long-distance running. Deacon had used that word, not on Georges, during their one-week boot camp training until Raphael de Cruz, also in the deputy program, reminded him he'd had his cock in Deacon's mouth four nights ago. Everybody is the F-word these days, so went the current wisdom, and it was pretty much so, if that kind of sex once or five times or a dozen made a guy gay. Georges had been waiting in case Deacon had a real question or comment. Other vehicles were pulling out of the lot, crunching metal hail. You saw Janelle's name on the list? asked Deacon, rolling his bike's throttle brake still squeezed. The wine rose. I did. Bet you're gonna be after her. A wide grin beneath the helmet visor. It was what he had wanted to say. Georges watched him slew out of the parking lot. Dumbass, he thought, without any real fire. How did Deacon imagine he was going to bring back any waywards on the back of that bike? Did he think the women would cooperate once they were in handcuffs? But Deacon had been on target. Georges's mind was very much on Janelle as he left the sheriff's station behind. Sixteen, eighteen, and nineteen. Those were the significant numbers. Sixteen deputies, culled from local high school graduates. Young, energetic, frantically hormonal. Regional law enforcement was tapped out, along with about every emergency service. Rusty Horvitz, ensconced bleakly in his station, personified that. Directives from outside the town, from outside the state, came from increasingly powerful and obscure federal levels. Even so, everybody knew this was coming, the game-changing go signal. 
It was why 18- and 19-year-old jocks were all suddenly volunteering for what they eagerly called the Pussy Posse. But the women knew about the final directive also. The town of Wilkins had to be worse after the hail onslaught, but as with Georges Radich's paladin, there was just no telling. Every window was boarded. Gardens were smashed and scorched. Debris piled the gutters. This included trees, lampposts, power poles, and everything that could be torn off a roof by tornadic winds. There was a general resignation to the damage. You couldn't repaint, replant, or repair, not in the face of these tireless climatic assaults. It was not, Georges thought, in the masculine nature to rebuild under such circumstances. You needed patience for that, and optimism. Deputy vehicles moved through Wilkins's streets, dogs given the scent. It was not quite a mountain town. A rocky ridgeline and long forested slope made the westward horizon close and personal, but a north-south U.S. route made Wilkins an impersonal pass-through. Frightened people on the move had stopped here, traveling either direction, implying there was nowhere safe to flee to. Wilkins's gas stations and fast-food drive-throughs had made sure the town received the women-killing pandemic. Georges pulled up in a crackle of melting ice in front of Janelle's house. He stepped out beneath the brutal summer in November sun and walked up to her door. Grass was black and thistly on either side of the littered walk. Rain gutters hung mangled from smashed eaves. He knocked, waited, knocked again, then just waited. The front door was fitted imperfectly with plywood covering decorative panes. The lower edge scraped the porch when Oliver Gant finally opened up. Georges reacted as he would have if the man had appeared with a gun in hand. A good day, Mr. Gant. Could you tell me if Janelle is at home? Oliver Gant was wiry and compact. As he had been for the past year and a half, Georges was acutely aware of the inch difference in height between them, finally in Georges's favor. He didn't turn to display the armband. It was visible enough. I was sorry to hear about your mother, Georges. Mr. Gant's breathing was ragged. That's very kind of you. It was also a delay. Janelle's mother and father had divorced when she was twelve, and her mother had moved away. Georges had gotten himself quite thoroughly punched under the schoolyard flagpole when chunky Rick Ould made fun of Janelle and no one else would stop him. May I see Janelle's room? Oliver Gant trembled with tension, then stepped back jerkily. Georges entered. It was dim without electricity and with wood over the windows. He knew the house from many nights as a supper guest. He knew the way to Janelle's room. The power wasn't out all over Wilkins, not all the time. The bedroom felt small without her in it. Or maybe just her stuff, her furniture, her knickknacks, her posters, pushed out further into the room without her mitigating presence. Her bed was unmade, always. Since a girl, she had refused this one chore. He opened the closet. Empty hangers were like bony shoulders. Try looking under the bed. The voice shook slightly from the doorway not as sneery as it was probably meant to sound. Georges reached up to the closet shelves. Just because Oliver Gant hadn't come to his front door with a gun didn't mean he hadn't gone and gotten it since. After a minute, Georges brought down a box and opened it on Janelle's desk, where homework, never to be completed, was scattered in a drift of notepaper and ballpoint ink. As Georges flipped through the envelopes in the box, he saw they were chronological and neatly aligned as nothing else was in the bedroom. She kept them... Mr. Gant said, once a month since forever. But there was nothing scornful in his tone now. Since Georges was ten and two months, and Janelle was nine and three months, but he didn't say so. It was forever to him, too. I should be going, 
Georges said. He ought to have been putting on a hat as he said it, something brimmed, a Stetson. You're not going to search the house. The bewilderment on Oliver Gant's harried face let Georges say confidently, There's no need. I will radio the other deputies. No one else will trouble you, sir. Good day. Even if Janelle hadn't kept his letters in order, he was sure he could have figured out which one was missing. Each had been painstaking and heartfelt, written by hand and dutifully mailed. Ninety-six was another number, another important one. A dismaying number, deaths out of any given hundred. On the global scale, this was incomprehensible. Your mind couldn't absorb the number of corpses. On the scale of Wilkins, it was a shattering reality. It was daughters and sisters and mothers and girlfriends, and each increment was known, agonizing, undeniable. When you and your dad dug your mother's grave in the backyard, with only the tools and ceremony with which you'd put a pet in the ground, you understood each and every moment what was happening and who was lying on the back porch, sewn up into a favorite down comforter, awaiting internment. But ninety-six also begot four, Four in any hundred would live through the pandemic, despite the lack of a Y chromosome. The flash melt put rushing water into the streets. Georges drove carefully through the current. A town without women was a strange, bereft place. Georges knew that his contemporaries, Deacon Breast and the heterosexual rest, felt cheated. Never mind the appalling tragedy of the pandemic. They had just been coming into their sexual primes. It was why they turned on themselves, frustrated. Georges had stayed a virgin all through high school. No accommodating cheerleaders for him. It was frustrating, but in a tolerable, meaningful way. He had been saving himself. The paladin was almost swamped at the last intersection, but the four-wheel drive hauled him through. He pulled out onto the U.S. route. The road was in bad shape. He worked his way north slowly. No other traffic moved. He passed a vehicle that had hit the divider and rebounded into the breakdown lane, trailing crunchy fragments like spoor. It wasn't far to the turnoff. Here the road had always been rugged, and the truck's wheels seized familiar loamy turf. The sun blazed, but a hot breath of wind drew in ahead of a ferocious exhalation. Everything he had known as a boy about changes in the weather and movements of the seasons was worthless now. Everything he had learned about the berserk climate since then was invaluable survival information. He reached the campsite. The desertion and fallen tree branches looked more natural here, with only picnic tables and barbecue pits to say humans had ever been here. Georges cut the engine and lifted the clinking bag out of the back. Dead pine needles spun through the canopied midday. When both their families had been intact, Georges and Janelle and their parents had all come here to camp. The children had been children then. And with childhood had come family outings, get-togethers, backyard cookouts, he hadn't known how fabulous such things were. He'd been distracted. Janelle had taken his attention, all of it. Georges started up the park's narrow foot trail. He had been deputized to bring in draft dodgers. His fellow deputies, over-eager and over-sexualized, might well find some of the others on that list. But no one but Georges was going to find Janelle. She was in the cave. He knew before he saw her, finding the edge of a waffled heel print, one not swept away by the branch left lying by the entrance. He had known she was here before this, even, and he'd strongly suspected prior to discovering the missing letter. He set down the bag which had weighted him climbing the hillside. He had gone off the trail at a precise point. From there it was a careful course, 
He knew the way, but went slowly, so to be quiet and watch for traps. He was quiet going into the cave, silent even. The sheriff had issued no weapons. Georges thought that wise. She was here. Of all the ways he had imagined the finding moment, he had somehow omitted a sleeping one. He had seen her sleep. As a seventeen-year-old, she slept as she had as a girl. On her left side, hands at prayer slipped between her knees. She was surrounded by the camping equipment he would have found absent had he made Oliver Gant show him the garage. Georges's heart beat harder. The wind woke her. Or she sensed him. Or she just naturally came awake. She started, then rolled sharply off the bedroll and away, coming up on booted toes and ten splayed fingers, eyes as animal as her stance. He expected a growl, but she said, God damn it. The cave wasn't the subterranean maze it had seemed when he'd found it at age thirteen. Then it had been a wonder, a mysterious labyrinth, and a priceless secret. But he had shared it. He drew the map with meticulous World War II spy detail and included it in the letter he wrote her. She might have come to his cave, as the letter asked, if he had written it a few years earlier. But by then she had changed. For him she had impatience, exasperation, and little else. The wind's coming up, he said. He hadn't moved closer. We'll go after that. She stood. Her body was lean, her hair spiky and dark, her everything beautiful. I don't want to go to the camps or whatever is waiting. I don't want to bring a baby into this world. Her voice started off steady, but it struggled out of a clenched throat as she finished. Can't you just leave me alone? Her eyes recognized how often she'd said some version of this last to him, and they shrank briefly into her skull. Then she examined him, fast, darting looks. She saw the armband, saw no weapon. She stood even straighter. The inhalation was still going on, a great growing backward sighing in the sky, making the stony entry to the cave sing. Cover was good in here, but Janelle couldn't be allowed to stay. Reclaiming her even voice, she said, Seventy thousand years ago, the supervolcano Toba on Sumatra blew. It spewed tons of ash. Earth was already in an ice age. Humans went down to forty fertile women. Forty! Does it seem right that we survived? That we bred up from that low number? It sounds like a mistake to me. Nature was selecting against us, and somehow we cheated. The pandemic isn't nature. Her teeth showed in a grin, and any kind of smile made Georges's stomach flutter. No, it's not nature, she agreed. It's a bioweapon that we don't know who used. Maybe we did. Whoever. It got out of control. It was made. Man-made, you could say. Same as the fucked-up climate. One led to the other. Crazy weather ruins crops, dries up the water, kills livestock. So we gotta go to war with our neighbors. Take what they have. How? kill their women. Why not? Make your enemy extinct in a generation. She wasn't standing as straight now. She had slid into a subtle, wiry crouch. Maybe her dad had given her a gun to take with her. She hadn't left it in view, if so. Dirt crunched softly beneath George's boot heels as he eased into his own combative posture. All at once, the sky exhaled. Its breath made a shriek. Janelle leapt. He had told her he would marry her when she was eight years old. Then he'd repeated his solemn intention to his mother, then to Mr. Gant. It was precious. Everybody said so. Janelle had said yes, she would marry him. So young it came out Maui. 
By twelve years of age she had changed her mind. When they were both in the same high school together, she had tried to be dismissive, indifferent, angry, belittling toward him. She told him to knock off this cowboy crap and leave her alone. Everyone knew how stuck on her he was, and nobody could make fun of him because he felt no shame over it. He acknowledged her attitude in the old-fashioned paper letters he wrote her, but restated his own unwavering feelings every time. He told her he would wait for her. The windstorm had been fearsome, but every climatic incident these days was formidable. Georges now had the weight of the shackles and Janelle, but the downslope made the going easier, and anyway, he would never drop her. She had, in her way, been as furious inside the cave as the storm without. He had blocked claws and blows as best he could, and had landed only the one punch on her, the jaw shot. He put batting cage muscle into it, and she did as she was supposed to. She lost consciousness. He slipped her gently off his shoulder onto the back seat of the paladin. He fed rattling links through the big eye bolt speared right through the floor. Someone might find the cave. More likely, Janelle would be spotted after a while foraging or hunting, or her dad would give her away by bringing supplies. Worse, worst, really. Oliver Gant might divulge her whereabouts under enhanced interrogation, when and if the induction program didn't yield enough fertile women and real troops came to do what young, horny deputies couldn't manage. Sheriff Horvitz had hoped to be wrong about him. Georges wondered if this was what he had meant. The truck shook off a coating of leaves and nettles as Georges turned the vehicle around and headed for the highway. He glanced down at his armband and allowed himself the most stoical cowboy smiles. Deacon Brest had been right. Badges would have been nicer. But the insignia on the armband would help. So would the shackles on his prisoner. Janelle didn't belong to him, but neither did she belong to anyone else. Not even the whole human race could tell her she had to breed if she didn't want to. And she wasn't the only woman averse to the idea of bringing children into this wrecked world. You might say there was a resistance afoot. If it was extinction, Georges thought, so be it. He drove south at a good clip, toward wide open spaces. Maybe he shouldn't have courted her the way he had, like this was a different century, one with a future ahead of it. Maybe she was right to be mad. But she had kept his letters, and kept them so neatly. He headed on. They wouldn't be together the way he wished, but at least he would be with his one true love. Eric Del Carlo has been selling his fiction for over two decades. His short stories have appeared in Asimov's, Strange Horizons, and many, many other venues. His novels, both solo and collaborative, have been published by Ace Books, Dark Star Books, Loose Id, and other houses. His latest book, The Golden Gate is Empty, written with his father, Vic Del Carlo, is currently available from White Cat Publishing. Eric is a native Californian and a Hurricane Katrina refugee. Find him on Facebook for comments and questions. This has been a production of the Brick Moon Fiction Podcast. If you like what you've heard, please feel free to write us a review on iTunes or visit us at our webpage, brickmoonfiction.com.